Welcome back to Women of AB Poly. I'm your host, Deirdre Mitchell McLean. And I'm your ranty, cursy co host, <laughs> Kathleen Smith, AKA Kiki Planet. And we have with us today from Nova Scotia, we have former Deputy Premier Diana Whalen. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Deirdre. And originally yep. from Alberta. And originally, yes, yes. Yeah. And we also have former Deputy Premier from Alberta, Sarah Hoffman. Welcome, Sarah. I'm so excited this morning. <laughs> uh, I'm thrilled to be here. It's really just nice the chat. best. The chat and to uh, unpack some of the issues that we've all been living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we actually, we, we booked we started to book this in December, early December, I think is when I first talked to Diana. And so we've actually, we've, we've been waiting for this. And then on the fourth, you know, there were some other things going on. So Sarah was a little busy that day. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, Sorry that we had to reschedule so many times, but I'm thrilled that we're able to be here together today. Yes. Important. And, and I understand Sarah, you're still yeah. a sitting member and you've got things happening and Things Thank happen you. very suddenly on really any day. You don't know what's ha- what's going to come up. Let's start with before politics. Um, I really want to talk about those role models because during my conversation, both with with Diana and Sarah, uh, Diana, you had said that that before you had gotten into politics, and even once you were there, there were still not a lot of female role models, and. I mean, I grew up in in central rural Alberta. I kind of came of age when reform was on the rise. So, I mean, in rural Alberta, that that was a big that was a big part of of our environment. And Sarah, when I was talking to you, you said as well that you'd never really kind of thought about how that environment might you know, maybe give you an opportunity or dissuade you (laughs) from taking part in this at all. Yeah, let's kind of go back to that. Um, Diana, let's start with you. Well, you you know, you make a good point. I didn't have any political role models that I can think of. I've very few women involved, even in municipal politics. And that's where I started was municipally. Mm-hmm. And, and that I think is, and I think we talked about it as, as a, a step. There are other ways rather than jumping right into party politics, which you would do at provincial or federal levels. I, I, you know, I think like a lot of women, I had a lot of interest in my neighborhood and in my community and in the sort of issues that a, a municipal council looks at, whether it's uh, sa- safety and sidewalks and, and, um, playgrounds and things like that because I had young children so I started at the municipal level and you know just got involved because I'd been involved in my community and and got interested I I met the people who represented us and had meetings with them about things I cared about and I didn't really like their answers (laughs) so you know I've after a while that you know once you get to know them a little and you think well I could do that because they're not really working (laughs) these issues or the questions I have aren't getting addressed Right. So I, I guess I got a little emboldened and decided I, I would like to run and, and uh, friends and others encouraged me when I, when I sort of dipped my toe in the water. But, you know, in terms of an actual political mentor, no. I will say, though, when I kept, I read your, your agenda and it has mentorship in it a couple of times. And I have to say my mother, who's from Calgary, she's a maritimer, but she's been in Calgary 60 years. Um, she was the first stockbroker in Calgary, the first woman to be a stockbroker. 
Oh so my she's goodness. Kind of treading new ground always in a really masculine world. And I think I look to her as a, as a role model, just about women challenging roles that aren't, you know, usually where, where you found women. And she, she jumped in with two feet and did that and had a 25 year career that was very successful. So that I think was a really good experience for me to see. Oh, absolutely. And so yeah. I grew up in a very small community in Northern Alberta and our member of parliament was pretty famous at the time for saying that people who are gay uh, could probably still have jobs, but he didn't think that they should be in the front of the business. Maybe they could work in the warehouse or those types of things. So, uh, so um, he was who represented us in Ottawa and um yeah, I'd say our family, my parents were both teachers. My dad was a principal. My mom taught kindergarten for most of her career or grade three. And um, they were definitely directly impacted by the decisions that the government was making in their careers mm -hmm. at the time where I was in like um, sometime between grade six and grade 12 was like when all the rollbacks started happening to education, the mm -hmm. cuts to teachers' salaries. And when I was thinking about what my career path was going to be and um, my dad very vocally was like, do not become a teacher. He loved the kids. He loved the parents. He didn't like the politics. He didn't love the way the profession was being treated and he wanted better for his daughter. Um, so I took sort of the scenic route, but eventually I got my B.Ed. and my <laughs> M.Ed. because I really cared about education. Um, and then, yeah, I had a few um, mentors in Edmonton. I was, um, when I was doing my master's, one of the retired professors from our department was Raj Panu. And he was the former leader of the NDP here in Alberta. And he just like really pushed me. He's like, we need more women and we need more young people. At that time, I was young. <laughs> You're still young compared to me. Yeah. I feel it every day. So. <laughs> and there's just so many other young people coming into politics, even 40 20 years ago would have been a baby in politics. But yes. you know, today there are a lot of young people stepping up and, and wanting to create a, a world that reflects their values and their principles. So, uh, so I'm no longer one of the young ones in Alberta <laughs> politics, which is kind of nice. Um, yeah, so anyway, I sort of took the scenic route, but I got more involved in politics. I was volunteering, I was working on campaigns. And then like you, Diana, uh, the Edmonton Public School Board was closing a whole bunch of schools. I looked at my trustee's voting record. He'd voted to close every single school, including the ones in our own riding that he was responsible to represent when they were up for consideration. And they were going to review another, I think it was 40 or 60 schools at the same moving forward. And I just thought, you know, like, I, I want to be able to live in a neighborhood that's got a community school and I should be able to do that in a mature neighborhood. I shouldn't have to move to the suburbs if I want to be able to have a school in my hood. So, um, so yeah, I was talking to Rachel and cause she was a friend of mine and she said, uh, I'll make my husband manage your campaign. And then I couldn't say no after that. So it's sort of <laughs> really, how do you turn down an offer like that? Yeah. <laughs> And I'm sure she didn't make Lou, but Lou was an amazing campaign manager and a really good friend. And uh, we were we were successful in running for school board. And, and I, I loved the issues that I got to address there. But of course, the biggest issue when it comes to school boards in Canada is where their funding comes from. And exactly. that meant I needed to consider um, trying to make a difference at the provincial level eventually. Okay. So it was something that you actually considered earlier. 
Not really. Like I'm just oh. sort of trying to connect the dots. <laughs> I love school board. I probably would have stayed there forever if we had a provincial government that funded us properly. Oh, and yeah. You know, like, and, and I could do my job to the best of my abilities without always having to fight uh, for every single penny to try to help disabled students or students who are learning English or, um, or just students who were in overcrowded classrooms, you know, all of those issues were like, it felt like I was uh, every day trying to, uh, you know, fight for these kids and the province didn't care. So that's eventually what took me to provincial politics. And, you know, I think if we've learned one thing over the last, uh, well, specifically the past four years and the last few days, it mm-hmm. is how important education is and not just uh, properly funded education, but education that has a curriculum that is actually beneficial to students. Because unfortunately, the, the surge of populism that we're seeing across North America, a lot of that really rooted is, is really rooted in the lack of proper education for most of our populace. It's why people are falling prey to these bizarre conspiracy theories. It's why they don't trust what they read Uh, between the lack of proper funding for education and the ability of each of us as individuals to curate our own media feeds at this Mm -hmm. point. We are so underexposed to truth and overexposed to conspiracy theory and rhetoric, and we no longer have the critical thinking ability to discern between the two, thanks to this lack of funding for education. That's just how I see it, of course, and I'm... (laughs) Just my humble really opinion. connecting the dots. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, over the last week, I've really been spending a lot of time thinking about the underlying issues that uh, are feeding everything we see mm-hmm. right now and how we go about addressing those issues. And I keep coming back to public education and how much we've screwed it up yeah. and where that's, where that's left us all at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And now, Diana, when you're like, one of the other things that we kind of had talked about was, um, I don't really want to call it an evolution, but it really was an evolution in the number of uh, women who were representing, women who were being represented, not just in Nova Scotia, but all over the country. And I mean, that also... uh, you know, culminated too with the NDP in Alberta, who made just such a huge, huge difference when we're talking about women representing us in this province. And Historic. it was, it was, it was. And so like, you, you had brought that up as well saying, you know, you, you paid attention to that, because that was something that was just kind of mind blowing, that that just happened. I mean, and I will say I was getting messages during that election, uh, people from people from the East Coast, people, uh, my cousin who was in Ontario, like she's like, "Is this really happening? Is this is this honestly <laughs> happening?" And I'm like, "I, I think it is." <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was amazing, and especially after 40 years of the same government, and and you know, again, I don't oh, know yeah, the exact numbers of women in Alberta, but I'm sure they were few and far between for most of those years. So a big change when you came into government there. What I saw in Nova Scotia was uh, my my election to the legislature here was in 2003. 
and I, I was there for 14 years. But when I was elected, there were six women in the House out of 52. Oh, wow. And so six out of 52, and I was the only one in the Liberal Caucus, which was, which was the third place party. We were, we were in opposition, and we were only 12 members, but still only one woman in, in the 12. Mm-hmm. And this, my second election in 06, I was still the only woman and we, our numbers were still low. Uh, but the legislature had been at six. That was the most we'd ever had of, of women. And when I left, there were 17 women. So that was a okay. big improvement, you know. Yes, almost, almost three times. <laughs> and uh, they're down one or two now, but they're still, you know, kind of holding their own. But, you know, the numbers have changed and, and you can start to see, see it in, I think, in policy and in other ways in debate. But when I was there, we were really just, you know, too few to really make a difference in the culture, I would say. Mm-hmm. I just want to say, though, that even just being at the table and being the deputy premier, and even if you're not a majority voice, the fact that you're at the table. And, and I think that when we have people who reflect the diversity of the folks we're there to serve, uh, raising issues, that we make better policy. So Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, I yeah. saw it as a challenge. I enjoyed, I enjoyed bringing up issues that maybe my colleagues wanted me to drop and I would just you know, <laughs> keep going at it because they just thought, you know, I was a dog with a bone, but you know, they would dismiss a lot of things that I thought were important. Right. So, and I did, even when I was the sole voice there, I did do that. And of course, when we came to government, there were more women in our caucus, but it was about a third. I think we made up about a third. And in cabinet, I have a picture above me. There were five women out of 16. So, okay. you know, but there were some women in, in the cabinet. Yeah. So I was, you know, but that's 2013. So we're, you know, we're then getting into more modern times. We should have had more women than that. So I hope that through podcasts like this and so on, we can encourage more women to think about it. Cause you know, I'm excited when Sarah says more young people are looking, mm-hmm. and, you know, that she, she's aware of more people stepping up. Yeah. There's certainly more young men in our caucus. I don't see young women too much. Okay. But I'm hoping there'll be more. And we need that. We need that. I, it's it's uh, something I've told my children and something I've really tried to stress, especially around election time online, is it's it's very fair for young people to say governments don't care about what we care about. Governments don't want to do anything for us. That's very true. But part of the reason for that is your power is in your vote. And Mm -hmm. if you're not going to engage, if you're not going to go to the polls, then they're not going to hear you and they're not going to bring in the legislation that you want or fix the things that you want fixed because they don't have to. Right. They don't have to listen to you. Why would they go out of their way when you're not even showing up to the polls to engage? So I think that's what you've said about... um, about getting more young people involved, that has become vital to the future of good government. It's become vital to the future of our planet in my humble estimation, because unfortunately my generation, which is Gen X and my husband's generation, the boomers, they don't seem too concerned with that stuff (laughs) right now (laughs) while the youth are. And we've seen the power that that youth can have in, in changing government and changing uh, the way government engages young people. We saw it in the States with Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. and love him or hate him. I'm kind of meh on the guy, <laughs> but there, there's absolutely no doubt that he pulled the Democrats to the left. 
of course, their radical left in Canada is what we call center, but (laughs) 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 radical healthcare for all is radical. Hmm, Okay. (laughs) I don't know. But we've definitely seen kind of a bad word, and it really is just centered, or you know, it really yeah, is. yeah. Try try explaining to people that uh, even Stephen Harper was kind of left of of the Dems. <laughs> they <laughs> they can't really figure that out. But definitely getting younger people involved, and especially getting younger women involved, yeah. right? I think too often young women who do get involved. At, at an early age, they're used as worker bees mm-hmm. within the party and within the system. This is something, Deirdre, we've discussed before, that all too often women show up to engage and mm-hmm. they're given the manual labor. They're, they're given the work as opposed to being appreciated for what they can contribute intellectual, intellectually or being mm-hmm. considered as candidates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I started being a worker bee. Um, but yeah, uh, I have to slog it away, you know, like delivering flyers, making phone calls, yeah. all that stuff. But then, yeah, people, um, people were like, why aren't you the candidate? You know, eventually, right? Like, and, and they did it before I even thought about it, right? Like, and that's, I think, often the way it is with women that we wait, and not just in politics, in, in most careers. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> we, we don't always put our hands up first. And I was thinking about Diana, we do have more young men than we do young women. We do have people who are younger than me, yeah. but you're right. There's a lot of our caucus. I, I could think of a number that ran in their late twenties, early thirties. Yeah. You know, that, that was more, maybe not right out of school, but pretty close to it. A couple of them and, um, and they've done well, but they, they see themselves in that role. Like they don't hesitate really to say, I'm ready. I can do that. And I think women feel like we're not quite prepared. We've got more to do. We haven't, we haven't accomplished enough or, I'm not sure, but but you're right. We do that in jobs too when it comes for promotions. So it may be it may be across the board, but I think with women, you definitely have to be asked and asked again and really encouraged. Yeah, yeah. and even me, and I was like probably on paper said yes faster than most, but to run provincially, like Rachel asked me three times. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Like we were good friends. I'd worked with her before. I you know, and I still was reluctant because I kept thinking. You know, do I have all the qualities? I thought about the best MLA. I thought about Rachel and am I her? Am I ready to be her? And of course I wasn't. But not everyone needs to be the leader. You know, like like, you shouldn't have all the qualities of somebody who's been working in the field for 20 years when you take a shot at it your first time, right? Like, um, and, and often I think when you see a job posting, if a woman doesn't have all of the qualities that are listed in that job posting, she won't apply. Yeah, we, we underestimate our own abilities and ourselves while existing in a culture where men tend to do the opposite. (laughs) They overestimate their, their abilities and uh, value themselves quite effectively. Right. And we just, (laughs) we just need to catch up. (laughs) Yeah. But I actually asked, I was on a, I was on a podcast over the Christmas holidays and uh, it was myself and four four men. Um, And this had kind of come up when we were talking about, uh, you know, the qualifications that people have. And so I, I asked them, I'm like, you know, it's been a while since I just sat and talked with a few guys about this. But do you find it strange that that Christia Freeland is 
in a way, like it looks as if she is being um, molded, right, for something better. Mm -hmm. uh, the amount of opportunity she's been given, the amount of the amount of work that she's been doing and offered to do and delegated to do. And then you look at, say, the 2019 election and uh, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, who had possibly been a gopher at an insurance company. And that was the, <laughs> that was, that was the summation of his experience before he got into politics. So I'm like, do you notice? Like, like just curiously, guys, do you notice the difference and, and people started asking, right, as soon as, as soon as Christy Freeland was made Minister of Finance, well, what are her qualifications, her qualifications. right? And it was like, in you the guys meantime, almost elected a gopher. Like, it, come it, on. <laughs> in the meantime, check the resume of any conservative premier in this country. Yeah. yeah. It's not even just us individually. Like, this is still something that is very... Uh, active in our society and in the way yeah. that in the way that everyone is looking at everyone else right sure Andrew Shear could be the prime minister oh but Trudeau's got a teaching or a, yeah, yeah he's got a, a teaching degree so he's not yeah. nearly as qualified like are you kidding me well, so and I think both of our guests this morning have probably dealt with uh, the merit the meritocracy hmm. rhetoric what what did you ever do to earn that position? And we only ask this question as a society when it's a woman or a person of color or an LGBTQ2 person. Okay. That's really the only time we start talking about meritocracy. Mm -hmm. No one has asked that about several premiers in this nation <laughs> who have a, a fraction of the education and resume that uh, a lot of women in positions of power have and yet are more powerful than those women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we assign a lot of, um, I guess, knowledge or ability to men just because of their gender. You know, mm -hmm. we just think they know it and they, they could be good leaders because our image of a leader is a man or a deep voice or a tall stature or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I had some experience with it. Maybe, Sarah, you have too, but I ran for the leadership. Uh, but in 2007, our current leader here for the Liberal Party is just resigning or retiring. He's been in for 14 years, so we haven't had a leadership here for that long. Okay. Uh, but 2007, I ran in the Liberal leadership, and he and I had been elected at the same time. We each had three years in the legislature. And four people ran for, for that office. And anyway, I, I lost by just a, a tiny bit. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I've certainly accepted it and worked well with them over the <laughs> years because that's what you do. But yeah. it, it was a very close race. But honestly, um, again, it, we were in totally different um, places in terms of our experience and background. And, mm. you know, as I say, he's done well. I've actually said it appears like during the time he's been in, he has grown and learned and it's like, He's, he's achieved a university education with all that he's learned and, and applied himself to. But he did not come to that role with, with university background, with a lot of travel, with a lot of experience. He ran a small business 
and that yeah. was what he brought to the to the role was and and what he built on was I understand business I know the business world mm. um but you know really we were very very different and I would you know I have to say I was much more worldly I, I traveled a lot lived in other mm. places experienced other things and I felt I had a much bigger world view of, of what we could be um but Anyway, it just shows it didn't matter what, you know, on paper, if we were looking on paper, I could say very clearly there was a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you and also mentioned too, that it was, that that's something that you heard while you were running for the leadership was, I don't know if Nova Scotia is ready for a female premier. Yes. And the other thing was, is, is sort of in terms of time, timeline here in, in that year. And I mentioned this to you, Deirdre, in 2007, only one woman had ever been premier of a province. Yeah. And that was Kathleen Callback in, in PEI. Mm-hmm. And that was the only one. And now a few years later, I remember sitting back and looking and there were five women premiers in the country. You know, we've had Newfoundland now. Um, I think at that time it was Newfoundland, Quebec, Ontario, Alberta, you know, and yeah. NBC had a woman. And so, you know, yeah, we've 2012, really changed, yeah. we yeah. have changed so much in that regard, but people could sort of look at me and say, well, I like you, Diana, but I'm not going to vote for you because I don't think the, the public would, would support a woman leader for premier. So oh. if, they, if they felt like if they elected me leader of the party, our party would fail in the next election was, was really what they were saying. It was a good excuse too, if they didn't want to vote for me. <laughs> but it was you never sad. know. And, and Just blame it on the populace. <laughs> yeah, that's well, right. I say it's not me. I'm really progressive, but I don't think the, the province is ready. Yeah. Yeah. And we still haven't had a woman leader. Yeah. Yeah, people often say that to um, disguise their own bias or their own assumptions. And, and it's not because, yeah, and, and it's hard to come to terms with that, right? Like the actual institutionalized sexism that yeah. even progressive women uh, sometimes carry for one another. Yeah. And I remember, I, I don't know if you've been, they, uh, it's like a four-part docuseries, so I don't even know if that counts as binging, or maybe even it's three, but <laughs> on Netflix about Hillary. Yeah. Uh, yes, I did. I bawled through it. I did not. <laughs> Yeah, I bawled. And like, I wish that they could have done that for her in the campaign because I like her more having watched that than I did when she was running. Oh, for okay. Her. Yeah. And, and I just thought, oh, isn't that interesting that so many parts of her story um, that you kind of remember now, but like they just didn't do a great job telling them during the campaign. But one part I loved in this docuseries is when I think it was one of her comms directors or somebody who was on the road doing comms with her anyway. Um, would regularly get feedback that they didn't like her hair or they didn't like her clothes or they didn't like something about her style. And her question was always, can you tell me a female politician you think who's getting it right from anywhere in the world? Tell me a woman that you think is doing a good job, who has a good style, who has good hair, whatever it is, and then we can try to model her uh, at least somewhat after who you think is good as a woman. And most people couldn't think of a woman that they thought was so it's really interesting how we carry so much of that with us I think yeah Mm -hmm. yeah I I mean you look at someone like um old Boris Johnson over there in the UK someone who actually should be worrying about how he presents himself and it's the least of the things that he gets beat up for right the guy looks like he just got out of bed every single time you see him every day and Trump with his 1980s oversized suits, his ties that hang down to his knees, that hair, the yeah. spray on tan. And it's, 
instead of being something that made everyone think, you know, maybe this guy hasn't got it together enough to be the leader of the free world, it became a trademark. Yeah. You know, for women, it becomes something to beat us up over. For men, it becomes their trademark look and somehow it's endearing to those who love them. I don't. uh, Yeah. But women are criticized so much more on on this sort of just those those um, exterior things, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Our look, Mm -hmm. our style, our hair, our our weight, who knows what, you know. Yeah. And they're very attacking on it, especially with social media. There can be a lot of nasty things said. And so we need a, a thicker skin as well. And I think Hillary's, uh, you know, race against Donald Trump is a perfect example of somebody who was clearly so much better prepared, mm-hmm. so much better, you know, experienced for that role to be the president of the United States. Yeah. And it's astounding that, that she lost to Trump. But her yeah. beeping emails. I'm trying not to be too cursy. Well, just, yeah, beep, beep so, is good. I see the sort of race I was in as just a little microcosm or, you know, reflective of what's, what was happening everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I really felt at that time very important that I was in the race. I think we need women in these races. The, the leadership race that's going on right now for our Liberal Party has no women candidates, mm-hmm. three men, and, and no mm-hmm. women stepped up. And we have more women in the legislature, as I said, so there were more potential candidates, but, um, but they, they haven't come forward. So that was the other so thing hard. that you made me think about, Diana. We were talking about how there were five female premiers at this point in time. And today, I don't. Do we have any right now? No. I don't think yeah. yeah. Um, I remember Rachel's last uh, first minister's meeting and it was like her surrounded that by a picture. All- yeah. Yes. And, and she's, she's also, work- she's not a tall woman. She's not a tall woman. <laughs> no, <laughs> I she said, pocket I, size. She <laughs> pocket size. <laughs> I think, I think the first time that I met her, I was in flats and I'm, I'm, I'm average ish. I'm five, seven. Uh, but that's, that's tall. For a woman. Rachel. Yeah. yeah. And, and also right beside Rachel, who's got her, who had heels on? I was like, oh, you know, like, I was like, how do I, how do I get a little bit smaller so we can both fit in this frame? Um, yeah. But, but yeah, it's like that picture with all of these men behind her and she's, she's right, you know, she's kind of right smack in the middle. And it's just like, this is representative of our country. Like yeah. there's no way this represents our country, but a lot of that goes back again to those opportunities. Are you putting, you know, are you, are you trying to get someone into the position? And this is again, where I guess I have to go back to Trudeau at the moment and say, he looks like he is trying to put a woman into a position where she is going to be the next leader. Yeah. And, and that's just not something that you see that often. So that brings me to a question I wanted to ask both of our guests this morning. I'm obviously, I'm all for uh, more women being in positions of leadership, for more women engaging in politics, but we do have a history uh, in this country and even in this province, it's a recent history of voting for women and sending them in to do the cleanup once the men have made a real mess of things. And this, it's I didn't see that happen just with uh, Rachel Notley in Alberta. I saw it happen with Christy Clark in BC. Whether I like her politics or not, that's what they did to Christy Clark. I think this goes all the way back to Kim Campbell. When that party had messed up everything to the point there was no hope 
that they were going to win the next election and they had to have someone doing a bit of cleanup and PR for them. So that's when they finally gave a woman the chance and then they made her the fall person for everything. Yeah. She was the political sacrificial lamb of her generation <laughs> here in Alberta. We saw it when uh, Redford and again, uh, didn't do a great job, Allison, <laughs> but some we <laughs> had, had some issues, uh, but we saw that same thing happen. It took 44 years for this province to actually vote for a progressive woman to lead it. And when that finally happened, it was because the previous party had made such a mess of things that it was almost like, well, there's no other option. So we're just going to give it to her. You know, we have a real history in this country of sure women, we're going to open the door and let you in, but please bring your brooms and dust rags, (laughs) clean it up. But they weren't leaving them any prize. As you say, they were handing them a situation that was almost certain to lead to electoral uh, disaster in the next election. Certainly it was a disaster for Kim Campbell. Yes. And we all too often hear, uh, I'll I'll never vote for a woman again after that leader. Well, I lived under Kathleen Wynne. I'm never voting for a woman again. I saw what Rachel Notley did. I'm never voting for a woman again, which we don't do with men. You never hear anyone say, I am not voting for a man again because Ralph Klein really, really screwed us all over. They don't say that. But the moment it's a woman and they don't like the policies of that government, it's all women. All women make bad leaders. I was doing some phoning last night into uh, Lester Slave Lake, the riding I grew up in, uh, which happens to be one of the ridings where one of the MLAs uh, decided to take a tropical vacation over the Christmas break when everyone else was told to stay home and stay safe. And nobody brought up Rachel's gender. And I think maybe it was because, and like there's, I was calling to people who were previously undecided and Mm -hmm. many, many were moving. Some, some were just polite conservatives who are going to vote for the conservative no matter who they are. Like, I think sometimes women hold a certain level of um, confidence when it comes to leading that people uh, actually like. So mm-hmm. I, think, um, I think being a woman and being able to, to be caring and nurturing at the same time as being strong and confident, I think can play out really well for Rachel. And I think that People are going to, like, already, I think there's a lot of buyer's remorse on the, on, on the lies that Kenny sold during the election and who he's actually turned out to be. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope they can see it because, because you're right. It, they, you know, the promises that were made, but, you know, even from my distance, I see that, you know, Alberta was sold the idea that you can return to the glory of, of, of oil and, and gas and, and make all this money again and, and, and so on from that. But the world price isn't dictated by Rachel Notley. Yeah, it wasn't right. dict- she didn't attack the industry. She played a very, I think, very, you know, careful role of trying to nurture, but also look at what else can Alberta do? How else can you grow and move into the to a new economy? Right. You can't mm-hmm. just because it isn't Alberta alone. The whole world is shifting. Yes. And, yeah. and, and oil will play a role, but it's going to play a diminishing role. And that isn't anything to do with disliking Alberta. Not the rest of Canada like Alberta, believe me. Lots of Nova Scotians <laughs> and Newfoundlanders and others have gone there and participated and been, you know, temporary workers back and forth. We, yeah. you know, we've appreciated the, 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 
well, the prosperity that's coming yeah. over. You know, and I, I think one thing that Notley doesn't get credit enough for is that she was willing to alienate some of her own base to mm-hmm. help our oil and gas industry. She was willing to take the political hit because she understood the importance of the ONG industry to our economy while still understanding the importance of diversifying. And that hurt her with her own base. But because it was the right thing to do in that time, she did it. And that's courageous. That's what leadership requires of us. Sometimes we have to take the hits in order to do better for all. And unfortunately, I think with this rise in populism and this surge of uh, communication via rhetoric, we're seeing a, a true absence of ethical and moral leadership. We're seeing leaders who are so afraid of their own base that they're not going to take those courageous steps. Uh, they're not going to risk alienating some people to do what's best for all the people. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I've always been... I have great respect for Notley for for having the courage to do that when she knew she needed to do it, even though she knew she could lose a few voices as a result of it. Maybe because we have to fight so hard to have a seat at the table, to get into the boardroom, to get elected. Women are a little bit more inclined once they're in those positions to rock the boat a little, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> we fought that hard to get there. What's a little so more? <laughs> let's, let's do something real with it. Yeah. Right. Whereas I think men who don't, and especially in Alberta, where let's face it, uh, you know, I've said it several times, you can slap a conservative sticker on an empty Pilsner can out here and Albertans will put it in the premier's office. I think especially in, uh, in Alberta, men haven't had to risk alienating their own base. No. That's why we don't see the decisions made that need to be made. Right. Well, that's actually, that's a good segue into that opposition to government movement because, Diana, you spent 10 years in opposition before you got government. So did you find that kind of a, a switch? You know, while we were in opposition, we were able to take maybe stronger stances on certain things, but when you end up in government, then you find that you're, well, you're a little bit more willing to, um, and maybe not even willing to, but you find that you have to kind of change that stance because this is what's required of me now that I am governing. Well, it's a good, a good question. It's certainly easier to criticize when you're, when you're in opposition, it's easier. You could say, I mean, not that we weren't always reasonable. I thought I was anyway, reasonable in what I asked. But, but um, you know, you could propose things that you didn't have to look at all the options or what all the implications were. Because you're not in government, first of all. You don't have all the people that help you, right? Sarah would know you've got <laughs> staff and others that do the research. If you're in opposition, you've got a really small research staff and you're probably just, you know, you're winging a lot of it because you don't right. have the resources. And so therefore you may not have thought of everything that you should before a policy comes into place. So probably in government, you're more aware of, of all of the unintended consequences and so on. So you, you might not put forth some of the ideas that you did in opposition, but 
is certainly um, I found when you're in government, you can make things happen. And that's an exciting thing. You're in a position mm -hmm. to actually, if you have some good ideas, you can really get that research done and move it forward. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I think that's tremendously important because it can get pretty frustrating in opposition when you can suggest things, but they, they often go into thin air and, and aren't acted on because of, you know, where they came from, that the government yeah. doesn't want to do anything that the opposition thought of. Right. And um, and so it can be frustrating. I, I really didn't mind being in opposition, though. I felt that I actually was sort of after 10 years thinking I'll always be in opposition. So that's what I'm <laughs> doing and, mm. and I did feel like you could raise issues and you had a, you still have a platform as an MLA and as a representative or a, a critic for an area that you can be the, the voice of, uh, you know, calling them to, I guess, calling them to account raising issues uh, maybe proposing solutions and yeah. i would see bits and pieces of things that i thought should happen get instituted and brought in and yeah. so i would take credit for the, the public that spoke out and what my voice at the legislature it wasn't me alone but together those different players could make things move right and yeah. so i did feel like i had an impact and i hope you do too sarah in the in the role yeah and when I ran in 2015 for the first time, I anticipated that I'd be one of those scrappy people who was fighting in for, opposition. <laughs> yeah, to, to make the cuts that were coming less harmful, mm -hmm. or you know uh, those types of things. Actually, having the opportunity during that term to be in government, sit around the cabinet table, and, and protect healthcare and education, and and cut child poverty in half, like that 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 is um, that was amazing, and I really am grateful for that experience. Uh, say that but, uh, again, but say that again, <laughs> cut child poverty in half. Because yeah. I, I can't hear that without getting a little emotional. Yeah. You no, know, when, whenever I think of the government that you were a part of, the government that served our province so well, those are the words I, I hear, cut mm -hmm. child poverty in half. Because I was one of those kids. I grew up in Edmonton's Northeast End. My mother was a, a teen mom runaway. So I, I, because I've lived it, I know what that means. And I know how cutting chi child poverty, if you change it, you change it forward. Yeah. I wish more people would get this. It's not, it's not about handouts. If we stop this cycle of poverty, we change it forward. Because then this kid succeeds and their kids are more likely to succeed and their grandkids are more likely to see, succeed. We're changing it for generations forward. So yeah. the fact that the Alberta NDP government cut child poverty in half mm -hmm. has saved generations of children from poverty, not just this generation. I get so excited about it and I get so emotional about it and bravo. Mm -hmm. Bye.